calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Realm presents Book Burners, Episode 24. Five. Vatican City was a little quieter than usual. The news had gotten out that something had happened there, and some of the tourists were staying away. And not enough of them. The line to enter the Vatican museums and libraries stretched down the block. We are not waiting in that said Gorogor. He gritted his teeth. Easy, Ariat said. Remember what we talked about? Excuse me, Gorogor said. About holding it together and just following us until we're inside? Oh, yes. Good, Ariat said. Come with me. Ariat, Rescatel thought. You can hear me if I think directly to you, yes, as I can hear you when you think directly to me. Yes, Ariath thought back. Privilege of being a mind reader. I can open a two-way street. Good, Rescatel thought. So Gorogor can't hear me talking about him. Why did we pick such a loose cannon? You know why, Ariath thought back. The three of them walked to a little office inside the Porta Angelica. A good-natured official waited behind the counter. Do I destroy him? Gorogor thought loud enough for Ariath to hear. No, Ariath thought. We're not even inside yet. Good morning, Ariat said to the official, who nodded. We have an appointment. She pulled a small stack of blank papers out of a satchel and handed them to the official, who looked them over with eyebrows raised. He stamped them and signed them, then looked at the three of them. Welcome back to the Vatican, professors, he said. I trust you know where you're going? We do, Ariat said. Please proceed, the official said. The three of them continued on their way, blank pieces of paper in hand. What did you make him see? Rescatel said. I didn't make him see anything, Ariat said. I let him see what he wanted to see. I let his brain make us whatever would make his job as easy as possible. The fantasy is more persuasive and forgettable that way. 
To tell the truth, I was expecting him to make us ambassadors, or perhaps police, but apparently visiting professors are the easiest, at least for him. Well, professors are so docile, Rescatel said. And delicious, Gorogor said. Rescatel made a sound of disgust. That was a joke, Gorogor said. I occupy professors, I do not eat them. They were approaching a courtyard jammed with parked cars. There were three entrances to the building in front of them, a white door to the right. That's it, Ariat said, pointing to the door. You really do know where you're going, Rescatel said. It's easy when you can read people's minds. So you know where we're going once we get inside? No, we'll just have to find someone else. A policeman met them with a quizzical look on his face as they entered. We are here for research, Ariat said, showing the blank papers again. If you'd please show us to a librarian, we'd be much obliged. The policeman scrutinized the pages. Then, right this way. He led the trio to a man clutching a small stack of books under his arm. Hello again, Massimo, Ariat said. It's good to see you. She pulled out the blank sheets of paper again and handed them to the librarian. Yes, of course, Massimo said. Welcome back. Thank you, said Ariath with a small smile. These are my associates. Is this the first time here? Massimo said, pointing to Gorgor, who was staring at the explosions of color on the walls and ceilings. They'd lost him for a moment. Yes, said Ariath. How are you going to do this? Rescatel said. Power of association, Ariath said. I hear the renovation of the library went splendidly, Arias said. Oh, yes, Massimo said. We're quite up to speed now. So much more has been digitized since the last time you were here. The Vatican Library is more accessible than ever. It could be the most accessible it has ever been in the entire history of the church. That's wonderful, Arias said and leapt into Massimo's brain. But surely not everything is digitized, even so. No. Massimo said. As he spoke, Ariath watched Massimo's memories light up. There was a stultifying argument Massimo had to sit through months ago over whether a folio full of meeting minutes from the 18th century should or should not be digitized. Massimo had said nothing for the entire meeting, thanks to his certainty that no one would ever look at them in whatever form the Vatican stored them in. They could hire a skywriting plane to spell out the contents above Rome and still no one would look. In Massimo's memory, the head librarian, whom Massimo thought of as a tool, had gotten very passionate about it and hurled curses at another librarian. Some things we must still keep to ourselves, he had said. Massimo, daydreaming, had spent the entire meeting replaying in his head, being in bed with his wife two nights before. It had gone on for a while and been particularly satisfying to both of them, and Massimo recalled that he had smiled a little there at the meeting feeling pretty sure that his co-workers had no idea his sex life was so torrid. The secret made it better. In the library, Massimo smiled a little. Eriath tried not to laugh. Some things, I imagine, can't be digitized, Eriath said. That's right, Massimo said, for all kinds of valid reasons. Now Massimo's memories were sweeping through the library, the building itself, just like Eriath wanted. She followed his mind's eye out of the splendor of the reading rooms, down the much more quotidian hallways that led to the back offices, and past a wooden door with a seven-pointed star on it. Massimo had never given the door much thought, but he had noticed it just enough to wonder what it was. 
He'd never asked. It was a question that occurred to him only when he passed the door, but he forgot it a minute later. A few times, the question had reemerged in his mind when he saw a similar shape somewhere else. He thought to ask about the mysterious door then, but then was distracted by other things. He also kept seeing the shape in Game of Thrones, which he'd become a huge fan of, but he wasn't the kind of person who brought his work home with him, so the question flitted through his mind and left again. It was never in there for long, but it was in there long enough. And now, just lately, a policeman had been stationed at that door. Eddie thought to the other two, found it. Let's go then, Rescatel thought back. Well, Eddie thought to Massimo, it was very nice to see you. She headed into the library with Rescatel and Gorgor in tow. Where are you headed? Massimo said. I'm sorry, I thought the forms I gave you were clear. That's a stuff area, Massimo said. I can't let you go there unaccompanied. No, Gorgor thought. Not yet, Eria thought. Fine, Eria said. I'll appreciate the help. They walked through the library, opening a small door into one of the back hallways. They passed a middle-aged man with a mop and a bucket, getting ready to clean the floor. Something about him made Eria jump into his head for a moment. And there, it was just as she thought, the man was a soldier posing as a janitor. There was a gun in a holster beneath his jacket, and he knew how to use it better than anyone on his unit. He also knew exactly what door it was that he was defending. We're close, Eria thought to the others. She picked up her pace just a little. You seem to know where you're going very well, Massimo said. You took me here last time, Eria said and jumped into Massimo's brain to plant the memory. Don't you remember? Yes, that's right, Massimo said. I do remember. But the librarian seemed startled that this was the case. In her haste, Eriath had been sloppy, and something about the memory, Eriath didn't have time to figure out what it was, wasn't sitting right with other memories he had. We're losing him, Rescatel said. Hold on, Eriath said. The door they wanted was now just down the hall. There was the policeman, this one in uniform. What was it that you were looking for again? Massimo said. I didn't say, Eriath said. They were in front of the door now. What's the business here? The policeman said. Would you care to tell me what you want? Massimo said. He finally sounded a little irritated. No, a little worried. Eriath looked up and down the hall. There was no one else around. She sighed. Gorogor, she said. Do what you came here to do. Gorogor curled his hands into fists and raised them above his head. For a split second, the fists bulged as though they were being pumped full of air. Then they popped in a small firework of blood and tissue. There were purple fists beneath it, nine-fingered, with scaly skin and pulsing with veins. The new fists grew until they were as big as Gorgor's head. Bigger. Gorgor brought the fist down onto Massimo's and the policeman's skulls. The policeman cried out and dropped. The librarian let out a small moan and flopped to the floor as though a switch had been flipped. Are they dead? Rescatel said. Their brains are, Eriath said. Sorry, Gorogor said. It was only a matter of time, Eriath said. She nodded toward the door. Gorogor popped an even bigger fist out of his right arm and started punching. The door was thick, the hinges sturdy. It took 12 hits for Gorogor to break it, but he did, at last. An alarm shrieked. 
From somewhere down the hall, the demons heard voices. There goes our cover, Rescatel said. Then we only have a little more time. They ran through the broken door and started down the spiral stairs to the black archives. You may not be on an elite team of investigators fighting the dangers of magic, but that doesn't mean you have to be defenseless when it comes to protecting your data online. Lucky for you, our partners at NordVPN know their way around the World Wide Web. VPN stands for Virtual Private Network, which creates a sort of encrypted tunnel while you're online, protecting your private data like bank details and passwords, so you can browse safely wherever you are in the world. In addition to providing you with a high level of security online, my favorite use of NordVPN is to virtually switch my location, so I can watch movies and shows that aren't currently available in my area. Plus, that way I can still access my favorite content when I'm traveling as well. I'm a fan of pretty much any British TV show, but they aren't always available in the US, so with NordVPN, I can virtually travel across the pond to enjoy my telly. NordVPN is also the fastest VPN in the world, and you can get all that speed, protection, and virtual locations for the price of just a coffee a month. To get the best discount off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com bookburners. Our link will also give you four extra months on the two-year plan. There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072, and the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Six. The orb had given off a faint glow an hour ago. Its numbers spun. What does that mean? Schaffner had asked. It tells us where the magic is being used, Asante said. And where does it say that is? Hugin said. Right here, Asante had answered. Team three had looked around the room, at each other. Sal wondered if somehow the hand had set it off, but then there was the demon's voice in her head at the top of her skull, soaked in sarcasm. You think your magic eight ball's going to find me? Schaffner and Hugin fetched their rifles. Vaz, without any indication that anything was out of the ordinary, fastened a vest to his chest and proceeded to hoist aloft a hammer that was far too big for him. Please try not to upset the books with that, Asante said. Vas winked. I'll do my best, madam. The next couple times the orb shone, the light inside got brighter and brighter. The numbers didn't move. What is it saying now, Schaffner said. Too close to say, Asante said. I feel like I'm on a sinking ship, 
Liam said. Or sitting on a bomb, Grace said. This strategy is crazy. Let's go do what we always do, bag it and tag it. In the Vatican, Manchu said. I'm not even sure the authorities would allow it. He looked at Voss. It's not advisable, Voss said. Our orders are to contain ourselves to the archives. Hilarious, Grace said. Team One can do whatever the hell it wants in every country in the world except its own. Welcome to the church, said Liam. That's a little unfair, Manchu said. Is it? Liam said. Gentlemen, Asante said. Let's not fight amongst ourselves, all right? We don't have to make their job any easier for them. Which is when the orb flared so bright that for a second they were all blind. They heard something crack. There was the smell of burning copper. The orb fizzled and dimmed, but kept sparking. Upstairs, it sounded like someone was pounding on the door with a sledgehammer. The alarm screamed on and stayed on. Oh, Liam said. Asante headed to her desk. What are you doing? Manchu said. This is my life's work, Asante said. Do you really think I haven't taken some precautions? At the top of the stairs, the vault of the ceiling opened all around Ariath, Rescatel, and Gorakor. There were the curved walls. There was the city of books below them in the gloom. The three demons had all heard about the Black Archives at some point in their existences on Earth. It was the place where the magic things went after humans got the best of them, after the society showed up to ruin the demon's fun. It had always been a source of idle speculation as to what the place looked like. Demon society knew the church was a wealthy, powerful organization, and over the centuries had constructed an elaborate idea of what the vaults were like, what powerful forces the humans could employ to keep the magic locked away. So Ariath, Rescatel, and Gorogor imagined encountering wizards, witches, warlocks, shamans, priestesses. Women and men like the ones they used to see way back when humans used magic all the time, before they swapped it for civilization and ruined the world. Beings of power. They laid eyes on Sal, Manchu, Liam, Grace, and Asante, standing in a patch of light near the bottom of the stairs, ready to fight. Another man with a ludicrous hammer. Two men who looked to them like clowns. Behind them, a glass ball in a case was sparking. Something was wrong with it. It was overloaded. Aside from that ball, even the books piled around the humans reeked of mundanity. Dead paper without a scrap of magic. They kept the real treasures locked in the vaults, Arias supposed. She swept through the minds of the humans below her and noted, to her satisfaction, that they were afraid. Is this it? Gorokor said. This is all it is. This will be easier than we thought, Rescatel said. That was when he noticed that Asante was holding something, a remote control. She twirled the dial and pressed a button. The couple of stairs beneath them, with a strange kind of precision, exploded and began to fall. For Rescatel, though, this wasn't much of a concern. Quickly, effortlessly, he shed his host and spread himself out as a net to catch Ariath and Gorogor. Gorogor grew another arm out of his back. Let us fall, he said. Rescatel did. Mid-air, Gorogor scooped up Rescatel and Ariath and held them above his head. He landed on the floor with both feet. Gorogor, Ariath said. It's time. Gorogor shed the rest of his human skin. Ariath closed her eyes and invaded Asante's brain. For the briefest of moments, the smallest possible passage of time, it made her stop. Because Asante's mind was a thing of beauty. Vast and organized, less a library than a cathedral of knowledge, of history, of memory. 
There was Asante as a young girl in Kinshasa, holding her mother's hand as they walked through the center of a bustling market, filled with the smell of vegetables and dust. Then there she was again, just a couple of years older, in Paris. The sights and the smells were completely different, and her hand had grown. Her mother's had gotten a little stiffer, the skin a little thicker, but it still felt the same. There were the births of her grandchildren. It seemed she was there in the room for all of them, and she seemed to remember everything, the particular sounds of their cries, some like laughing, some like grieving for loved ones gone, but every one its own song. And then there was just how much she knew, how much she had done. She knew how to weave and spin her own wool. She knew basic carpentry and fly tying. She knew how to blow glass. She had forgotten almost nothing about any of it. Then there were her professional obsessions, her encyclopedic knowledge of the black archives. That was where Ariath found what she was looking for. It was a recent memory and therefore fresh, vivid with color, of the particular shelf in the particular vault of the black archives where she had decided to keep the Codex Umbra. It was in a metal box and the box was locked, but it was so close, just behind one of those doors. There were two combinations to get through those doors, but Ariath knew them already. What were a few numbers after all she'd sifted through? Ariath took the memory she needed, jumped out of Asante's head and jumped into Rescatel's. Gave him Asante's knowledge. Asante had felt the whole thing, Ariath knew. If she had more time, she could have been more subtle. But there was no time. Go, she thought to Rescatel, and opened her eyes. It took less than a few seconds. Except for Asante, nobody had even moved yet. They know where the Codex Umbra is, Asante said. Grace looked in their general direction toward the bottom of the stairs. There were three of them, right? She said. Right, Asante said. I can't see them at all, Grace said. Really wish she didn't have so many books in here right now. Asante hit another button. Floodlights fired up on the ceiling. Better, Asante said. Yes, Grace said. A little. A dull roar came from the bottom of the stairs. They could all hear the flutter of pages flying and tearing, and then saw a cloud of paper rising above the tower of books, as though they were being mowed or harvested. Gordogor broke through the final stack of books just before the edge of Asante's desk. He was now a fat squat thing on five legs, a sixth limb curving out from the middle of his back like a scorpion stinger, except that it ended in a large, long-fingered hand. His eyes were lost somewhere in the folds of his face, and he had a huge mouth now full of pulped paper. He spat it out in a wad and snarled. Schaffner and Hugen yelled and fired their weapons at Gorogor. They put at least 20 holes in him, making him slick with some pinkish substance that oozed out of his wounds, but it didn't slow him down at all. He leapt forward as though he were a cricket and was on top of them. They stopped yelling, Schaffner because his ribcage was shattered, and Hugen because his neck was flattened. A sound came out of Gordogor that must have been pleasure. Grace shot Voss a glance. You ready, she said. Absolutely, Voss said. Voss leapt in and gave Gordogor a wallop of an uppercut with the hammer, jerking the demon's head around. Grace snarled and jumped onto Gordogor's back, grabbing onto the base of his arm. The hand at the end arched over and in, trying to pluck her off. She reached up and snapped the wrist. Gordogor howled. Grace smiled. Then Gordogor hopped much higher and faster than his legs should have been capable of carrying him. With Grace on his back, he bounced from wall to wall, a cannonball of fatty flesh. Voss jumped in pursuit, careening off the walls, striking blow after blow with the hammer. 
The three of them plowed into piles of books and laid them low, carving channels through the stacks and towers, making chaos just like Gorogor was supposed to. Grace hung on. The rest of them almost didn't notice Rescatel, who had wriggled out of his host and left the remains on the floor by the stairs so he could change shape unencumbered. The rug, the desk, the area Team 3 occupied was between him and the door he needed. That didn't matter. He stretched himself out until his limbs were impossibly long and skinny and in two steps had passed over Team 3. But Rescatel made a mistake, brushed against a book that somehow hadn't fallen over yet and made it plummet to the ground. Liam looked up. Oh, no, you don't, he said and jumped for Rescatel's passing leg. Sal, come with me. Sal didn't move. Manchu shot her a glance, somewhere between confused and angry, but there was no time to question it. He followed Liam. At the door to the vault, Rescatel was putting himself back together. He was more or less humanoid, though with features a talented child would make out of wet clay. They worked, but there was no detail. They were put together in haste. He raised an appendage, formed a ball at the end of it, and two fingers out of the ball, enough to spin the combination lock on the door. Liam reached Rescatel first. He had the idea that he would give this thing a full body tackle and knock it to the floor. But Rescatel just stretched out all around him, accommodating him. An image popped into Liam's head of trying to break through a giant condom that was still rolled up. He pushed into the membrane and then started to try to gather it in his hands to move Rescatel. Manchu caught up and headed for the appendage that was fiddling with the lock. Rescatel worked fast. The door opened, just a crack. All of Rescatel turned to almost liquid, dropped to the floor, and slipped through it. God damn it, Liam said. Asante, Manchu said. Lock this place down and call the rest of Team One. He pushed the door open with his shoulder, and he and Liam charged in. They were now in a triangular anteroom with a door on each of the other two walls. It was designed to be confusing, to slow anything down that didn't know where it was going and trap it there. But Rescatel knew where he was going. Sal, Manchu called. Help! Sal still hadn't moved. She watched as Grace flew around the room on a demon's back, boss in pursuit. She spared a look for the two mangled Swiss guards on the floor, half covered now in fallen books and torn pages. Liam and Manchu had run after another one. There had been a third. Where was it? The demon was still leaping through the air. Grace almost flew off it, but held on. Like a rodeo in a library, Sal thought helplessly. Like a bull in a china shop. Inside her head, the hand was laughing at her but she could tell she was frustrating it. When it wasn't her own suicide she was contemplating at the same time, it turned out she could keep the hand at bay. At least for a second, not for much longer. Stop resisting me, she heard the hand say. She was trying to leave to get the hand as far away from the archive as she could. The hand wouldn't let her. But Sal was putting up enough of a fight that at least for the next 30 seconds, nothing was moving. I don't want to have to shatter your ankles in order to move them, the hand said. But I will if I have to. I can still make you walk. Go ahead, Sal told him. You don't mean that, the hand said. Try me, Sal said. You're even stronger than I thought, the hand said. She caught a hint of genuine admiration in his voice. It will be a pleasure to break you. In the air above them, Grace was climbing toward the demon's throat. As though from far off, Sal felt someone touch her arm. Asante. Sal, she said. Are you all right? 
If Sal hadn't been looking at Asante when she spoke, she wouldn't have understood the words. Her ears were rushing with blood. No, she said with great effort against the hand's will. She looked at the tank Asante held. What is that? Sal asked. It's a flamethrower, Asante said. For the demons, hopefully. But if they win, maybe for the books. It's better than the demons having them. Use it, Sal said. Use it on me, she was trying to say, but the hand stopped her. I plan to, Asante said. She ran toward the part of the archives where Liam and Manchu had gone. You have less than a minute before you fall to me, the hand said. It's a minute I can be proud of, Sal said. Rescatel chuckled to himself. He had this. He was a puddle on the floor of the antechamber. He extended a crude tentacle up toward the next door he needed to open and spun the combination lock to the vault where the Codex Umbra was held. What's the call? Liam said. If we can't stop the demon, Menchu said, maybe we can stop the door. Liam nodded. Both men charged for the door, stepping into Rescatel, who had just finished unlocking it. Rescatel formed another tentacle and headed for the handle. Menchu and Liam braced themselves against the door. Rescatel tugged at the handle. The door didn't move. Ah, you shite piece of silly putty, Liam said. Menchu smiled. Rescatel let out a little gurgle. That's right, Liam said. Ready to give up? Then Rescatel made sure they could tell he was just chortling. He grew four pseudopods out of himself, latched onto the human's legs, lifted them up and away from the door, and tossed them to the other side of the antechamber. As Liam and Menchu were scrambling back to their feet, Rescatel inched the door open and slithered through. He was in the vault now, a long room with four stories of shelves that vanished to a point somewhere in the middle distance. The shelves were locked down, protected with metal shields that must have been triggered when they broke in. Rescatel glanced toward the ends of the shelves and saw that each one could be unlocked with a key. He loved it when safety measures worked in his favor. He pulled himself up and grew long legs built for running. He gave himself a fleeting couple seconds to consider the objects he was flitting by. There was a rope that promised the man who found it he could climb to heaven, then strangled him to death when he tried. By a strange coincidence, Rescatel had been there for that. There was a helmet that offered infinite protection to the wearer as long as he didn't mind going insane first. There was the statue of an angel guarding the vault, and a holy relic, the finger bone of a saint, and a metal glove under glass. A sticker below the case read, in case of emergency, break glass. Rescatel smiled to himself. At least this librarian had a sense of humor. And there were the rows upon rows of books locked away in all the languages of this world, several from Rescatel's and more from beyond them both. Some were just blank pages, he knew. Others were illegibly black with ink. The mischief that could be made with it all. But Rescatel was smart enough not to be distracted by that. He knew what he'd come for, and thanks to Eriath, knew just where it was. He found the right shelf, shaped a short appendage into a key, and had it unlocked quickly. The metal shield slid away, and there was the safety box the codex was in. Another lock that needed a key, another finger shape. It was all too easy. He already had the codex out of the box and was headed toward the door when Liam and Manchu got inside. Rescatel grew a head, a face, out of courtesy to them. 
It allowed him to throw Liam and Menchu a hideous, triumphant smile and emit a shriek of glee. The two men lunged toward him. Rescatel admired their pluck, but they were exhausted, and it was a simple thing for Rescatel to bend his legs wide and avoid them. Menchu's age seemed to catch up with him all at once. His attempted tackle made him lose his equilibrium, and he hit the floor hard. Liam was younger, stronger, and doubled back. He sprinted, leapt, and managed to lash himself to what, in Rescatel's current form, passed for a torso. Still heading toward the door, Rescatel first just elongated the arm holding the book so Liam didn't have a chance of getting it. Then he split himself in two. It was a trick he liked to say for this point in a job. His adversaries always found it so demoralizing. Liam watched in astonishment as the body he was clutching withered away in his arms and dissipated. He fell to the floor. The legs kept running. Before the upper part of the torso with head, arms, and the codex umbra still attached hit the floor, it had grown legs too. The upper half jumped and joined with the lower half just before Rescatel reached the door, and he was out. He could hear Liam and Menchu calling behind him as they picked themselves up and gave chase syllables that must have been the names of the other people on their team. He didn't care. The door to the hub of the Black Archives was still open. There was Asante standing in the way, smiling. Perfect, she said. I don't even have to burn any of my books. She let out a sheet of flame from the nozzle of the flamethrower. Rescatel recoiled for a split second, but even this wasn't so bad. He jumped up and spread out over the ceiling. Asante let out another burst of fire at him, though by then he was already racing down the walls, a liquid in a fast flood, except for one hand still clutching the book. He channeled the rest of himself into the seam between the wall and the floor. To Asante, it looked like the book itself had grown invisible wheels. It raced along the edge of the floor and then between her legs. Rescatel regrouped behind her and burst through the doorway into the library. It was snowing, shredded paper. Gordogor lay on a slope of books that had fallen into a pile as if for a bonfire. His head was at an odd angle, and the humans who had fought with him stood over him, panting. They must have gotten the better of him. Ariath was already halfway up the stairs that remained, rickety from Asante's explosion, but still there. Gordogor's dead, she thought in Rescatel's head. Good, Rescatel said. They've done our work for us. Yes, they have, said Ariath. Right about then was when Rescatel was glad he could hide his thoughts from his partner. It saved him the awkward conversation they would have to have when Ariath understood that Rescatel was already figuring out how to kill her and had the codex for his own. Ariath was the one who wanted to use the book to take over this earthly realm. For someone so smart, Rescatel thought, she was incredibly naive. Sure, the taking over part would be fun, but running it afterward, managing the slaves and minions, not to mention overseeing the vast bureaucratic infrastructure to torture the doomed and the damned, that, Rescatel had decided, would be his own personal hell. Besides, Rescatel liked this world fine, just the way it was. He even found much of it beautiful, more beautiful in its small, subtle way than anything his own world had offered to his sight. He just wanted to have the money to live in it well. Sure, he could have just inhabited a rich person, but he wanted to make his own money. He liked the challenge. This codex tucked under his arm, though, was just the way to get his payday in one shot. He'd make sure to sell it to someone who was interested in using it on some other plane of existence. I'm definitely saving this one, he thought, for myself. All he had to do was kill Ariath as soon as possible, maybe before he even left this room, and the dream would be his. He had his eyes on a house on the coast of Kyushu. He could already see it in his mind. 
which was when he felt the pressure around his torso and found that he couldn't get free. Sal was still fighting the hand when the liquid demon reappeared with the codex and started sprinting across the wasteland of paper for the stairs. She had seen the flames light the antechamber to the archives, seen Rescatel jump from the door, followed by Asante, Menchu, and Liam, trailing smoke from Asante's fire. It had been less than a minute since the demons had arrived and demolished the library. She hadn't moved an inch. Somewhere near the base of her skull, the hand purred. Fire, good idea, he said to Sal. She felt a heat inside her, a growing fireball just under her heart. It coursed through her limbs, broke through her skin. She screamed. Don't kill me, she pleaded. Please don't. I have no such plans, the hand said. The flames cauterized as they cracked through her, and the pain gave way to something else. For the rest of Team Three, it was as though a torch had been lit. Sal was still Sal, except that she was wreathed in purple fire. She raised her right hand as Rescatel passed, and a million bits of shredded paper and splinters of bookcases kicked into the air in his wake. Rescatel changed. He split in two. But this time, it wasn't his idea. As the conscious half of him looked back in surprise, the other half had formed into the hand that now captured him. He had lost control of himself. I do not at all appreciate you attempting to steal what's mine, the hand said. Smoke poured from Sal's throat as he spoke. Rescatel looked down at the human form that held him captive. My lord, he said, if I'd had any idea you were here, I would never have done what I did. The hand's voice curdled. Give me the book. Rescatel dropped the codex umbra. It fell toward the floor and stopped in midair, then floated over to Sal's outstretched left hand. Excellent said the hand. For your compliance, I offer you a quick death. As Rescatel howled, the hand pulled another hand, bigger than the first, from Rescatel's own body and wrapped its fingers around his head. Both giant hands tightened their grips, twisted Rescatel four times over as though wringing out a wet dish rag, and then pulled him apart. A dark orange liquid burst from him as from a water balloon. The hands fluttered and disintegrated in the air, and Rescatel's thin, empty skin dropped to the floor. The hand made Sal take a deep breath. And you, he said to Ariath, who was in a frenzy trying to get to the top of the stairs. You who sought to use the book to usurp me, come back here. The hand made Sal open the codex and pulled power from it like a battery. Sal's fingers made seven quick flicking motions, and the top seven stairs above the gap Asante's explosion had left popped out and bounced off the stone walls of the archives just before Ariath could escape. Now, Sal made a motion with her hands as if opening a book, and the protective cage around the stairs opened to expose the terrified demon. Ariath shouted and flailed. Then, at once, she wasn't moving at all or making a sound. And you call yourself more than human, the hand said. My host has more strength than you do. With a languid, beckoning gesture, the hand caused Ariat to float from the stairs, through the air, down to the floor in front of him. Ariat's face was frozen in the shriek she had been making. The hand put both hands on Ariat's head. 
The demon's body shuddered and cracked, and then in a sudden series of crackles, imploded up into her skull. Working Sal's fingers across Ariat's scalp as if polishing it, the hand worked the demon's head, its host's head, making it smaller and smaller until it was big enough to fit in the palm of Sal's right hand. Then the hand made Sal eat it. She turned to her teammates. And to think that creature is still alive after all that, she said, sending a new trail of smoke toward the ceiling. That must be painful. Grace leapt at the hand fast, but not fast enough. The demon pushed air toward her and knocked her to her knees. Anyone else want a shot? Liam and Asante just stood there, anger and terror passing across their faces. Behind Sal, Manchu was murmuring to himself. Is that the litany of the saints I hear? The hand said, an exorcism prayer? Save your breath, father. We're long past that. There are no books to help you understand what I am about to unleash upon this world. And you will have no words for description when you see it. There are none, not in human tongues. The hand brought the book to Sal's breast. See you soon, the demon said out loud. Are you ready, the hand said to Sal inside. For what, Sal asked. You'll see, the hand said. A flood of feeling poured through her. More pain, a lot more fear. But underneath it, something else, growing stronger and stronger, an emotion intense enough that it took Sal a moment to recognize what it was, and then be horrified for feeling it. Exhilaration, ecstasy. Wrapped in flames, Sal's face broke into an expression of pure bliss. She heard her own voice intoning words she didn't understand. She pointed upward with one finger and a door opened in the air above her. A wind picked up and the millions of scraps of paper strewn about the archives lifted into the air like luminous feathers. Sal was swept into the door. It closed behind her. In the archives, the paper settled. And just like that, she was gone. And the codex with her. The alarm still blared away. Team three could hear voices above them from team one. They'd arrived, just too late. Grace stood up. What's our next move, she said. We can't let Sal just be taken like that. Asante and Liam both looked toward Manchu. He stood there, unmoving. Do we even have a choice, he said. We have to go find her and get rid of the codex at last. He looked at Liam and figure out how this happened. You are listening to Book Burners, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. 
Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Book Burners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Amal El-Motar, Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by XE Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith and additional editing by Corey Barton and Brooks Ewald. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi featuring Jody Redditch Ferber and mixed by Justin Morell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Osadolahi. Find more shows like Bookburners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm. <laughs>